0: 36, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Lots of big doings today. During the 11 o'clock hour, there is a new study that is being released today, which actually tries to answer the question about whether or not, around here, charter schools and parochial schools do as good, if not a better job, of educating kids than MPS. It is a study that I guarantee you is going to have all sorts of heads exploding, and we're going to be talking to one of the authors of the study shortly after eleven o'clock. So stick around for that. Also, very bittersweet day here at Radio City. Um, John Milan, my dear friend John Milan, today's his last day. His newscasts five, six, and ten o'clock. Um, his la- will be his last newscasts after a a just an incredibly. An incredible career. I mean, if you just look at all his accomplishments and how long he's been such an institution in this market, and today is John Milan's last day, and I think there's going to be some festivities and activities for him. And he's got a lot of stuff going on. We're going to reach out to him if we can get if we can get some time on his busy calendar. We will certainly do that. But uh, tune in at five and six and ten o'clock tonight on today's TMJ4 to watch the final weather forecasts from John Milan, a true a true Milwaukee institution, and definitely a renaissance guy. I identify with John Milan. He's old school like I'm old school, and there's no school like the old school. We start out every show by a segment I call three big things. These are things I think you need to know about so you can discuss them at the water cooler, the coffee closet, lunch, um, dinner later on tonight. And let's not bury the lead. Big thing number one is Donald Trump's address to a joint session of Congress last night. I confess... Um, I've gotten jaded over the years, so lots of times I do not watch these addresses in their entirety. What I do is kind of check in or out or maybe watch some of the highlights. Last night, because of the the nature of Donald Trump and the controversies surrounding his first five weeks in office, I decided I was going to sit down and I was going to watch the speech. And I went in really not knowing what to expect. Would this be a speech where he stuck to the teleprompter and he stuck to the content of the speech, would he, as he is occasionally known to do, kind of go off on tangents? Would the audience, um, you know, would he be heckled? How would he respond if he was? Would he be presidential? Would this be an antagonistic tone of speech? How would he do? And I was absolutely fascinated. I I watched, I mean, it lasted over an hour, and I, I watched it and, I was able to track down a text of his speech, so I was kind of following along as he was giving the speech. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. You can call to participate in the show. You can also text us, and um, I will read some of those texts on the air as well. So it's 799-1620. But let's get started. Grade President Trump's speech last night. And you can decide how you want to do it. We're going to assign grades A, B, C, D. You can give pluses. You can give minuses. You can grade it on style. You can grade it on substance. Do you think he acted presidential? Do you like the content of the speech? Grade President Trump's speech last night before Congress. 414-799-1620. That is the acunate mortgage text and talk line. Hondo is lining up the calls. We are back to discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 843 Jeff Wagner 620 WTMJ great President Trump's speech last night on our WTMJ Econet mortgage talk and text line let's see um watched my watch with my boyfriend who avoids anything political we actually created a drinking game but to my surprise about 20 minutes in he turns to me and says I might be a Republican huh 414 is the number let's start with Jim in Sockville. Jim good morning
1: Good morning, Jeff. Um, just a quick comment. Let's move on. Uh, I'm a Democrat, not a big fan of Trump, to say the least, but i got to tell you, he came through presidential last night. I'll give him uh, a B on presentation and a C-plus on message, mm-hmm. and I'm totally shocked, but that's pretty much where I'm at.
0: Well, you know, if you're a Democrat, Jim, there was a, there was a lot of stuff that he was talking about that the Democrats would like. I mean, this was kind of... This was sort of a big government type of speech. You know, we're going to have government, we're going to have the infrastructure spending. You know, there 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 was a lot of stuff that I think some Republicans might have been a little bit queasy about, but but in general, you think he exceeded expectations.
1: Oh, absolutely. And it seemed like he he made an effort to reach across yeah. a little bit and perhaps this will change his tune and perhaps he'll stop rambling as much as he has, Jeff. So Right. No, thanks. So so, so, no, I,
0: right. Thanks. you know, there, there, clearly he's Clearly, he stayed on on message and did not allow himself to get distracted. Here we have a text. Grade A. Very impressed. Especially touched by the tribute to Ryan Owens. That's um, you, you can overstate things, and, and just because of recency, but the the tribute to the fallen Navy SEAL might be that that will go down in history. I think as one of the most memorable moments. In a presidential address. I'm not saying the most memorable moment, but that was you could argue that that might have been the moment where like Donald Trump actually became presidential and the country, just like we united after 9-11 that might have been a moment where the, the country all comes together. Because conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, how can you not be moved by that tribute to the, the fallen Navy SEAL and, of course, his wife, who was in the audience? Mike in Whitefish Bay. Mike, you're on 6. WTMJ. Good morning.
1: Morning, Jeff. What do you think? Um, I, I'd give him a B for uh, the content. I thought he, he did a nice job. I thought he could have did a better job at holding the uh, Democrats to
2: um, to
1: join in the this party. I mean, it, you could see it was such a divided room and and I, you know I think he could have said more to I mean that's why people I think elected him if he was somebody different I think he could have said you know we don't play on a Democratic team or a Republican team we, we gotta work for the American people and you know, this division yeah. is not working for us so let let everybody put their hands in and let's get to work um, other than that I thought it was it was pretty good on content and on delivery I'd give him a
0: B yeah do you think still, he, did he exceed your expectations
1: he did yeah. he really did because I I thought after all the Twitter rants right. and you know talking about how big of an election he won, and he just he should do less with the Twitter yeah. and uh, let somebody else be a spokesman for the most part. That speech was pretty
3: good.
0: No, um, I agree. I agree with you, and I I think it, it far exceeded expectations. I was not, I was honestly Mike, not sure what to expect, and I, I thought I thought the delivery of the thing was good. Again, I. Th- these are these are sort of, he's just outlining broad strokes. So, I mean, the devil is always in the details in these things. But I, I thought he did a pretty darn good job. I yeah. was impressed. I, I thought he did nice. Yeah, thanks for calling. And it's something to build on. Let's see, on our text line, A+, plus. I was blown away. I expected him to do something dumb or petty. And for the first time, I think he was very presidential. That's from Andy in Greendale. Uh, yeah, a lot of people, I, I think... I think this might have been sort of a breakthrough moment for Donald Trump. Now, again, I, I understand that there, there's going to be people that want to take him down. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm looking at a column that was probably written even before the speech um, in the Chicago Tribune by one of their lefty columnists. President, President Trump gave a speech. That's about the most honest analysis one can give of the president's Tuesday night address to a joint session of Congress. He gave a speech. He didn't fall down. He didn't sound like the snarling red meat hurler we heard on the campaign trail and his inauguration. And that was enough to convince some television pundits to declare the impossible had happened. Trump had finally, on this night, became president. That's not a smart takeaway. This man is and has been president. And while the implication was that he had finally come around to acting presidential, I'd argue his actions in the first month of the presidency have spoken far louder than the measured tone he took on Tuesday night. So for the people who... If anybody thought you would be able to bring together the country, at least the the left, that certainly did not happen. Although I think it's very clear that a lot of the Democrats did not know how to respond to this because a lot of them were sitting in the audience going, hey, this this does sound like a presidential thing. And like I say, if you listen to the content of the speech, there's there's stuff for, there's stuff for the big government types to like. I mean, he was talking about a lot of different government spending plans, and the devil is in the details. I don't know where the dough is going to come from, but there was a lot of big government stuff that Democrats could like. John in Oakfield. John, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ.
4: Good morning, Jeff. Uh, I a plus, first of all. But there was a guy before who said that Trump did not try to call the Democrats out to work together. I don't know what he was listening to. There was numerous points yeah, where he was trying to that, talk
0: about reaching across the where, aisle. Yep,
4: where he, where he was talking about unity and that hey, we were broad here, and that you know there's a bigger cause, and that you know what I mean. I don't remember the exact. I can't quote line and verse, but you know that there's a you know there's well, uh, hey, hey, one uh,
0: of his big lines was one of his and, big lines was uh, we want to end thing, trivial is. fights. That was we want to end trivial fights. Let's work together and unite for the good of the country.
4: Yep. But the other thing is, I think you have to give the Democrats an F for the way they conducted themselves. Number one, with uh, when he was when uh, Owens was getting an ovation, they did not want to. They did not want to applaud. And when the vo- when he talked about the victims of voices, even when he he was getting interrupted as he was mentioning that, and you know who was interrupting him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to – I mean, I think in general – I guess I disagree with you to an extent, John. In general, I, I thought the loyal opposition was relatively well-behaved. You, you had the, the stunt where the women show up in the, the, white, the, the white outfits, oh, okay, fine. There were a couple points where people would make the thumbs down. I don't know if you saw that, but they'd make the thumbs down like when he was talking about repealing Obamacare. And mean lots of sour faces, Nancy Pelosi, just kind of with a sour face. But I think one of the things that was happening is I think people in that room knew, number one, not only how the speech was playing in the room, but knew how well that speech was playing to the, the broader picture. And that's why I think, you know, you had Democrats scrambling afterwards because they didn't know what to say. I mean, it was one like, OK, you, you can't accuse him of not being presidential, at least for one night. I think he hit a home run on one of our other texts. Can't believe it, but he gets an A. I can't remember a single moment from Obama or Bush or Clinton speeches, but the soldier's wife moment will stick with me. Yeah, that's, that again is going to be one of these moments when they, they look back on memorable presidential addresses. That's going to be a moment that is played and played and played. In general, I did not know what to expect last night. I had no idea going in whether he would go I, I had the text of the speech and the text of the speech looked good to me. But again you you just never know because President Trump has been known to kind of put aside the teleprompter and start to freelance. He stuck to the text of the speech. I think it was well delivered. I think it was a message, a unifying message. And I think well my guess is that, you know, his approval ratings are gonna probably, you know, go up a few ticks. Stock market is certainly responding well. Stock market is um Let's see, it was up, it opened up almost, uh, what do we got, at stock, wow. The Dow Jones Industrial up 220 points, the NASDAQ up 45. I, I've always said it, it's silly to make investment choices based on a particular political event, but there's no question, what's driving the stock market today is in general a very, very positive response to that speech. Dell in West Dallas. Dell, good morning. You're at 620 BTMJ.
1: Good morning. Um, I was going to say that I have, been a never trump person Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and uh i think until recently when i've gotten a chance to actually you know watch him do some of his meetings where he's got bullet points or whether last night where he's got a written out speech
0: and he stays on message he stays to the speech right yeah
1: yeah but that's you know but that's also somebody writing something out for him you know so i'm you know it's some of it i'm trying to figure out well what who is he really and i'm still you know i'm maybe coming around to liking some of his policies right. to some of this stuff but uh yeah i got some other things i could say but i
0: well you know I'm well i'm just glad i'm glad that. he stayed off twitter last night and, and at least as far as i know there, there were no there were no 3 a.m tweets saying knocked it out of the park i mean i think he let the speech speak for himself and 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 the more he does that, I think the better off he's going to be.
1: Um, yeah, that's that's what you got to do. You, you can't be like that. You can't keep calling everything you're going to do or have done tremendous. You have to let everybody else think what they may and and, and come to their own conclusion.
0: Um, Thanks a nice call. And now I, again, there were there are aspects of the Trump presidency that I, I want to see how this, this play out. I, I am not a protectionist. I, I'm a free trader, and I, I guess I. I I, I understand this America first type of thing. How that plays out in a global economy remains to be seen. But at least for one night, I think President Trump looked presidential. I think he exceeded expectations. Now the question is, what do you do next? How do you build on whatever momentum he might have generated? It's 8.54. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Big thing number two coming up. Eight fifty-six, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. The Brewers hit the airways for the first time in two thousand seventeen. Later today, they go head to head with the Cincinnati Reds in Cactus League action. Our Brewers game day coverage starts at one fifty-five today. Sponsored by your local Chevy dealers. One final uh, text from our WTMJ Acunit Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Bob from Madison says, "Great on President Trump's speech. I was lukewarm on Trump prior, but I would give him an A minus. I think he made many people realize that solid, common sense, responsible positions." just flat out make sense I, I think I think it was a winner all around. the question is where do you end up going from here? okay, big thing number two Scott Walker is proposing we increase advertising spending on the Wisconsin lottery. Um, lottery tickets have gone up. Uh, last year for example, sales of lottery tickets stopped 627 million dollars. Wisconsinites bought six hundred and twenty-seven million dollars worth of lottery tickets. That's up about twenty-seven percent from a decade ago. And of course, um, you you do get some property tax relief from the, the money that the lottery ends up making. Um, in his budget request, the governor says, "Hey, I, I want to increase advertising. Let's spend a little bit more." Because if we spend a little bit more, and he's talking about spending a few million dollars more, we will be able, we think we can generate $27 million more in ticket sales over the next couple years. So he says, hey, it's a good investment. Let's spend a few million dollars. Let's increase our advertising budget, and that will help generate sales. All right. That to me, I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense that if you advertise, you're probably going to increase sales. But here's what I think is the interesting issue. There is no worse bet in the world of gambling than lottery tickets. They're, they're, they're just not. And I understand it's one thing if somebody, okay, the, the powerball thing is, you know, $600 million and it's life changing and you want to buy a dollar ticket. All right, that's fine. But typically, to the people who play the lottery, it tends to be disproportionately lower income people, people who can't afford it. And and the return, the chance that you are going to really make any sort of money is just dreadful. I mean, if you were in Las Vegas and you were looking at one of the games and the chance of return, you, you wouldn't play it. So four one four seven nine nine one six twenty eight hundred eight seven seven one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage toll free talk line. Should we be should we be encouraging more people to play the lottery? It's big thing number two, and we discuss right after the news eight fifty nine. Jeff Wagner six twenty WDMJ. 909, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. In about 10 minutes, Chris Abley's cover-up unravels. But before that, big thing number two. Scott Walker wants to increase spending on the lottery, the advertising budget for the Wisconsin Lottery, by an extra $3 million. Lottery sales have been up over the course of the last decade, um, but the expectation is that they're going to be flat moving forward. I think last year the number was... We we sold uh, $627 million in lottery tickets. The estimate is it's going to go down slightly. So what Governor Walker is saying is it, it makes sense. Let's take $3 million. We'll advertise. We will increase the amount of money that's there. Now, there's a couple problems with this. First of all, the question is, does advertising, will increased advertising really drive more people to the lottery? That's number one. Number two is, is the lottery, and that's the bigger question to me. Is the lottery really worth it? Now, we we were, when we first instituted the lottery, the idea was we were going to get massive property tax relief. And I think, I think it would be fair to say that from a property tax relief perspective, the lottery has, in my opinion, underperformed expectations. At the same time, while I am the last person to tell anyone, you know, how to spend their money, especially since. I got the gambling gene from my mom, and I've been known to go to Las Vegas, so I've been known to go down and play horses from time to time. The, the reality is, I can afford to do that. The lottery is a very, very regressive bet. By regressive, I mean you have you have, if you look at where the majority of lottery tickets get sold, they are in zip codes that are lower socioeconomic areas. You, you have, in general, in general, people who probably can't afford to do this. Doing this in larger proportions because, hey, this is going to be life changing. I'm going to take $20 that I really otherwise don't have. I'm going to invest it in the lottery, invest quote unquote in the lottery because I'm going to win and it's going to be a life changing amount. It is regressive in the fact that people who are in, people who live in the poor areas tend to spend more percentage wise on lottery tickets. And I have always had a problem with the lottery in that regard because it's about as bad a bet as you can make. 414-799-1620, 414-799-1620, that is the Accurate mortgage talk and text line. All right, should we be increasing advertising spending on the lottery in an effort to try to generate more lottery sales? Let's see, um, Grover writes, I voted for Walker, but it's ridiculous. How many people could those millions feed or how much of the roads could we fix for $3 million? Um, let's see, Jackie writes, I feel advertising more will not increase the amount of people who will play. People are either into playing or they're not. The people who purchase these tickets could benefit more from staying, from saving the $1 to $5 or whatever than hoping for a big payout. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage toll-free talk line. And I, I admit, I, when I listen to what the governor is talking about, yeah, I mean, I think if you put an extra $3 million into advertising, it would increase it would increase probably lottery sales. I believe that advertising works. At the same time, is I just have a fundamental problem with the notion of the lottery in general. And I have a fundamental question about whether or not we should be investing taxpayer dollars in an effort to try to convince people to generate, to do stuff that, um, well, is against their... Best interest 800-877-1620. Another one of our texts is increasing ads spent to drive lottery revenue. Isn't it simply another aggressive tax? Would we be better off spending the money on substance abuse or addiction? Yeah, I mean it is. It is clearly a regressive tax. I think no question about it. Al and Lac. Al, you are on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Morning. How are you doing? Very well, thank you, sir. Okay, what do you think about more money for the lottery?
1: Well, I look at it this way. Look at Super Cash, okay? You can win two hundred fifty thousand, okay. Right. But if you get four out of five numbers, you win five hundred dollars. Right. That's nothing. That's absolutely nothing. Give more money back to the people and give them a chance to win more more than one winner. You know, right. your Powerball and your Mega Bucks and Mega Millions. You know, yeah, they get one point two million or two point five million. Why don't you have two or three winners and draw two sets of numbers?
0: So you That's don't like the way the lottery is run to, to begin with. You think we, you think they you'd rather see smaller payouts and. More people winning. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean again I I, I mean I don't I, I don't have a position on this one way or, or the other, other than with all due respect, the lottery is really, really a bad bet. I mean it is a staggeringly bad bet. And if you do it for fun because the Powerball, like I say, is five hundred million dollars and you want to be able to dream, yet you buy the Powerball for two bucks or whatever they charge now. And, you know, you, you want to be able to dream, gee, what would I do if I won, you know, $500 million? Okay, that, that's fine. But, again, I, I go to some of – sometimes I walk into these convenience stores, and I freely acknowledge you can't judge a book by its cover. But I see people who don't look like they're necessarily the folks that have 20 and 30 and 40 and $50 dollars in disposable income on a regular basis to be buying all the scratch-offs and participating in the lottery things. Again, I'm the last person to tell people, you know, don't gamble because I admit that, that I gamble. But but I'm not fooling around with the rent money or the cell phone bills or, or worrying about whether or not I'm going to be able to you know go out to dinner or buy food over the weekend. I just the, the whole notion of the lottery, and I understand it is here to stay, and I'm not against people who play it, but at the same time as a policy matter, encouraging people to play the lottery, especially given the fact that it's going to encourage people who can probably least afford to play the lottery to do it, I just think it is questionable public policy. And you wonder whether or not that $3 million might be better spent on doing other things. Coming up next, big thing number three Chris Abley's cover up explodes. We will discuss. 915, Jeff Wagner. 620, WTMJ. 18 Jeff Wagner 620 WTMJ. That is Roger Waters, that's the Bumper Music, of course, of Pink Floyd Fame. He is coming to perform July 29th at the Beamo Harris Bradley Center. I have a pair of tickets I'm going to be giving away sometime between now and the top of the hour. So we're not giving away right now, but keep listening sometime between now and ten. We will we will give away those tickets. This story, this ongoing story about the debacle that is the Milwaukee County pension plan. It, it actually I, I I had a real world experience with this the the other day all right my late wife um, last year though she passed away in May um, she retired from the law firm she worked at she was a partner um, she took an early retirement because of disability because she was sick and so she had she it was all, all all in all done it was three months of pension payments three months uh, 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 three months that's it. So we got the pension payments. I get a letter in the mail two days ago saying, you know, we, we've done these calculations, and because of something or other, um, we feel you were overpaid 1600 bucks, and so we, we want it back. Now, other than kind of adding insult to injury, but the point is – the, the law firm, they, they caught this, and apparently they said, okay, because of this rule, you know, you've been overpaid 1600 bucks and here, you can have a payment plan and sell, pay it back at $135 a month or all at once or whatever, and again, it, it sort of adds insult to injury, and there's parts of it that bother me, but, but I understand they, they say there was an overpayment. They caught it. They caught it right away, and they notify people, which is what you would expect a responsible business to do. Well, that's not how Milwaukee County works. Now, we, we talked last week about this incredible story that resulted in the former Milwaukee County pension chief losing her job. Apparently, a couple years ago, she was notified that there was a pensioner who was receiving too much money. They were being overpaid. Now, you would think that when you're told that there's somebody that's getting too much money, number one, you would stop the payments. You'd say, okay, well, we're... If we know that there is a mistake, if we know we're supposed to be paying Hondo $25 a month, and instead we're paying him $25, 1st thing is, moving forward, you're only going to be getting the $20 a month, right? That That's what just anybody would do. And then you would move to plan B, which is to figure out how you would you know, get Hondo to over to repay the, the overpayment. Well, in Milwaukee County, what apparently happened is they notified the head of the pension department that hey, there's this overpayment going on. They, number one, never corrected it, and number two, they continued to make the overinflated payments for a couple more years, resulting in an overpayment of about $140,000 to this one pensioner. And now you're in a position of saying, okay, well, h- how do we get this money back? What what are we going to do? Can you go to somebody and say, oh, give us $140,000 in a lump sum? And-, and it doesn't appear to be the pensioner's fault that, that she was getting these overpayments. And this is apparently the straw that broke the camel's back and led to the firing slash resignation of the the, the pension chief. Well, credit where credit is due. Apparently, Milwaukee County made a report to the IRS um, back in 2014 detailing all the problems with the pension program. And uh, this was... Chris Abley decided not to make this public. This this goes back a couple years, and credit where credit is due, the journal Sentinel had to get an open records request um, to, to find this report. Abley was stonewalling it, did not want it to become public, because he's been the county executive since 2011. And in fairness, the problems with the pension system go back to Tom Amitt's and incorporate the time that Scott Walker was the county executive. But, you know, the last six years have been on Abley's watch. And rather than simply making this report public, they made everybody jump through the hoops. They were trying to keep it, it silent. But what it apparently documents is that this was not an isolated situation. Hundreds of retirees have either been paid too much or, in some cases, too little in their pension checks. You get the idea that the Clown Car Act, that is the Milwaukee County Board, extends to a Clown Car Act in the Milwaukee County pension system. Now, what makes this even more interesting to me is Milwaukee County is the only county that operates its own pension system. In general, you have, you have a, most public employees are covered under the state pension system and You don't hear about these problems. Now, maybe they're just better at covering up the problems than the county is, but I don't think so. I mean, it's these type of things do not happen in well-run pension programs. It just does not happen where you have these types of mistakes that are made on a regular basis. And when you have one mistake after another that's made – you get the idea that the people that are running this are just flat-out incompetent. Now, the woman who was essentially forced out after this this problem that I was just talking about, she says, hey, I, I did a good job. Yeah, I might have missed this one, but you should have seen the things I caught that were going on. I mean, I yeah, I missed this, but I caught all sorts of other stuff. This is just a, a mess. And part of the thing is we're never going to know how big a mess this is. The county pension has, system has been screwed up going back to Tom Ament and the backdrop and the whole pension scandal type of thing that results in just absolutely outrageous, shocking payments in cash being made legally to some employees. And now you get the idea that there's a lot of people who are in the pension system who the, the amount of money they're getting perhaps bears no relationship to what they are really supposed to be getting. And you kind of get the idea that really nobody has a clue as to what is going on. This is one of these times, and mark the tape, I rarely say this, one of the county supervisors, former state representative Sheldon Wasserman, he's the guy that led the charge to try to get Pokemon Go out of Lake Park because he didn't like people parking in his neighborhood and bothering folks. Well, Wasserman is one of the people saying, hey, maybe it's time for Milwaukee County to just get out of the business of administering pension systems, and let's do what everybody else does in the state Let's turn the responsibility for doing that over to the state pension system because apparently, well, I don't know if they could do it better, but you sure know they could not do it worse. So it just gets worse and worse when it comes to the entire pension system. Big thing number three. No question in my mind, it is time for Milwaukee County to get out of the pension business. They've demonstrated, if they've demonstrated nothing over the course of the last 15 years through multiple county executives, it's they don't know how to run the pension system. Turn it over to people who might have some clue. And as far as Chris Abley, and any time you want to hear him talk about transparency, um, stonewalling a report that would have embarrassed his office back in 2014, Sooner or later, the cover-ups always unravel. 926, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We don't need no education. 928, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The ACLU is suing the city of Milwaukee over what it claims are controversial police practices. What does the organization want to come from the lawsuit? Hmm. Hear from one of the lawyers working on the case during Wisconsin's Afternoon News. That's today right after Brewers Baseball. Yeah, Brewers Baseball. 155 this afternoon. I always love the first spring training game. It just kind of gives you hope that the weather we're experiencing right now, the snowy, foggy, drizzly, just icky type of stuff, it's not going to last forever. As I mentioned just a couple minutes ago, Roger Waters coming to the BMO Harris Bradley Center July 29th. He's going to be playing a lot of the Pink Floyd hits. I have a pair of tickets to give away to the show. Let's give them to caller number 14 at... 414-799-1620. That's the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 414-799-1620. But you have to call to win the tickets. Texting doesn't work. You now he's talking about Milwaukee County. I have a text from Ken who says, when Mr. Trump drained the D.C. swamp, did the water run to Milwaukee? Here's here's this, this whole thing with, with the Milwaukee County pension system. I, in some respects, I am sympathetic to the former pension director who says, okay, I missed this one. All right, yes. I should have shut off these payments. This one pensioner got $140,000 more than they should have. That's my bad. Sorry it happened. But, but you should see all the other crap that's been going on. You know, it's not like this was just one error that was there. She says, I'm catching, we're correcting these things all the time. And I am, I guess I am somewhat sympathetic. It's sort of like if you walk in and there's 400 things going wrong, you've got, you know, 400 little uh, leaks in the dam. And and you're trying to plug them up the best you can, and you're, you you're not able to get two. And there's a flood. You say, okay, well, I I plug 398. You're going to fire me because I didn't get the 399 and 400. I I'm somewhat sympathetic to that argument, but the bigger picture is it demonstrates what a clown car act Milwaukee County government continues to be. And another reason why, if you're playing around with people's money, particularly pensioners' money, it it, it whoever is handling it. It shouldn't be Milwaukee County. They have demonstrated they are not able to do it. Period. It's 935. Check back 620 WTMJ. If technology and robots are intended to make our lives easier, then why do some fear a threat to the American job force? Get the details with Scafidi and Billstad at 1235 today. Yeah, We talked a little bit about that yesterday. Wendy's in response to rising labor costs, they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start putting in self-ordering kiosks in our restaurants. These kiosks, they cost like $15,000, but you you don't need as many people working behind the counter, and they have a remarkable payback period. They they pay for themselves very, very quickly, and uh, that's, again, for everybody that's pushing $15 an hour for minimum wage employees, especially like in fast food places, the truth is, As those costs go up, what's going to happen is it makes it easier and easier for businesses to automate, and we're all more comfortable with automation nowadays. So be careful what you wish for. Speaking of of the dangers of of modern automation, the vast majority of Americans now have cell phones, and cell phones, well, if if you look at somebody's cell phone, it is pretty much an indicator of of their life. You know, we, we have... You, you save your messages, your, your messages are there, all your recent phone calls. I mean, you can pretty much take somebody's cell phone in general, and especially if there's somebody who uses the cell phone regularly, you can go back and you can re- recreate what they did in a particular day or, or what they've done over a period of days. All right, here is the story. It happened in Washington, but it could happen at your employer's workplace. Um, The Trump administration is extremely concerned about leaks. Uh, People taking information that is not public and, for whatever reason, leaking it to people in the press. Whether they want to embarrass the Trump administration, whether they want to buddy up to people in the press, whatever. They're, they're, They're concerned about leaks. So apparently what happens, what happened recently, is the press secretary, Sean Spicer, summoned about a dozen members of his communication staff to an emergency meeting. And when they entered the room, he asked them to surrender their mobile phones so White House lawyers could check to see if they might have been used, that's the phones, to leak inside stories to the media. In other words, hey, let me see, I want your mobile phone. You are working here, I want your mobile phone, and I want to be able to go on it I'm going to access, for example, your recent call. And if you see, I don't know, you see that there's a series of calls to a number associated with the, the New York Times, that at least gives you a basis for saying, okay, why, why were you calling the, the New York Times? And maybe it's a legitimate reason I was calling the New York Times because I'd gotten a phone call from so-and-so and I was returning it. Or it could be an indication that this is the person who was you know, reaching out and leaking information. The same thing is, of course, true In the private sector, you know, you have people that, I I don't know, maybe there's an unflattering story about your employer that ends up in the local newspaper ends up on WTMJ or ends up on Channel 4 or whatever. And if you're the employer, you know that that had to come from somebody inside the building. So the question becomes, should an employer be able to call employees in and demand access to their personal cell phones as they try to investigate to determine whether or not there has been some violation of company rules. Now, what what people learn quickly is that if you're on the company email, it, that's pretty much fair game. I mean, that that's if if you're using the company email to exchange messages or send things, um, you, you got to understand that at some point in time. The boss has the right to look at that. And if you've got stuff that you're doing on the company email that is going to get you in trouble or compromise, it's going to be caught. But what if what if this is the private email? Or what if this is your private phone? You're doing something that is in violation, arguably, of work rules. Or maybe you're not. Should your employer be able to require you to give up your personal cell phone so it can be checked to see if you have violated office rules. 414-799-1620, that's the Acinet mortgage text and talk line. You can also text us. But, I'm I, again, if your employer called you in and said, hey, we've had a security breach or we've had a leak and we're trying to get to the bottom of it or we've had reports that there has been some misconduct – and we want, to, we want to see your cell phone. We want to have access to your text messages and your recent phone calls. Should the boss be able to ask you for that information? And should you be required to give it up? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 940. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 944, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. This is going to be an interesting conversation. Let's say at your employer, you get whistled in for an all-staff meeting, and the employer says... Um, we're, we're investigating, we think there's been some unauthorized leaks of information, or we found some discrepancies, and we're trying to check this out. And what we want you to do is, all you employees, we want you to give up your personal cell phones. Here we Here's a company lawyer. We want you to put in your password. We want to check your, your search histories. We want to look at your phones to find, we want to see your texts. We want to see your call, phone calls to see if, if maybe you know, you've know you called somebody, if, if you're the person that's responsible for the leak, or if there's some text that you've sent. And again, we're, we're not talking about company email. We're not talking about a company phone. We're talking about your personal phone. Should you have to show it to your employer? Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're first. Good morning.
1: Hey, uh, good morning, Jeff. I, I think that that's just going too far. I think that your personal phone is your personal phone. And uh if there's reason to be suspicious, you know, there's other methods they can probably do the investigate that. But I think that uh, it's just going too far. You, know, you call your wife and say, I'm gonna say, Let's meet for dinner or whatever. Yeah. Whose business is that? It's the company's business. It's uh I I just think
0: it's uh you think it's just too intrusive. More. Now what I guess the flip side, though, would be Mike. Somebody would say, "Look, if I if I don't have anything to hide, if if I haven't done anything wrong, what what do I care if the company looks at the last three weeks of of, of my, my recent history of phone calls I've made? I'm not I'm not involved in collusion. I'm not stealing from the company. I'm not leaking information. All you're going to see is calls to the window company and to the dog walker and to my you know significant other or whatever. I mean, if what? How about that? I mean, okay. if you have, you've got okay. nothing to hide.
1: Uh, on the flip side of that, uh, I still think it's none of their business.
0: Yeah, yeah. They just playing. I uh, got it four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Toll text line. and seeing that is the question is is it going too far? And should an employer be able to require that information? Again, this is that that's what that's what the White House press secretary did not that long ago. They're trying to get to the bottom of leaks. So he calls in a number of people who works for him. He says, okay, I want your cell phones. I want to see what are on your cell phones. I want to see the numbers that you're calling because they're trying to see if one of these people were were at least now, again, if, if you see a number that's an irregular number, hey, this is the guy that broke that story at the Washington Times. I have at the Washington Post or whatever, you, you, know, you had three phone calls to him at 1 o'clock in the morning. What were these phone calls about? Does the employer have a right to know that? Let's talk to Sandy in New Berlin. Sandy, good morning.
5: Hi, Jeff. Hi, Sandy. Um, My husband and I are business owners, and I believe um, as business owners, we have the right to ask for them to turn in their phones, but not demand that it should be a voluntary thing. And I understand that with Spicer, it was not a demand. It was a voluntary turnover, which makes it a whole different situation.
0: Is it? Is it... In, but the question is, Sandy, is it? Is it inherently coercive? You, let's say you've got... You've got five employees who, who all like and, and need their jobs. The boss calls them in and says, you don't have to do this, but I want to see your cell phones. And four of the five employees pony them up. Isn't, is there an inherent coerciveness to that fifth employee who maybe chooses not to want to do it, but is afraid that, hey, this is going to hurt me in the company if I don't, or they're figuring out I've got something to hide?
5: No, it's the understanding. It's voluntary, but you know, there's another step businesses could take, and I don't know if this is legal. Well, what about um, banning cell phones during um, the time that they're actually on the payroll? Right, right. I mean, that's that's another whole question out there because there's a lot of abuse um, with cell phones. So I said I still say that it shouldn't be um, demand, but you have the right to ask.
0: Well you, can all, right, well, you can always ask. I mean, right, you can always ask. I guess the question becomes, is it inherently coercive? If you ask and somebody says no, are they going to be afraid that, okay, I'm going to be fired or you're going to figure out that I'm the person who's who's doing the leaking? Also, from what I understand, in many cases, the employer isn't just going to be concerned with, what did you do on, on company time? Let's take the situation where you're trying to – you are, you are investigating a leak of trade secrets. Let, let's get it out of the realm of politics. You you know, you know work for the Hondo Widget Company, and all of a sudden, you think you're a big competitor. You're, you're coming out with the newest, greatest widget around. And all of a sudden, you're, you're a big competitor now you think has access to you know, what you're going to do, and you're trying to figure this out. Well, chances are, if there was somebody internally that was leaking that information, my guess is they probably wouldn't be doing it necessarily in company time. They're probably doing it three a.m. Or, or something like that, off company time. But the fundamental issue is: do does an employer should an employer be able to require the employee to do that? And yes, you're right, Sandy. I mean, you, you can ask, but what happens if the employee says no? Let's talk to Denny in Fox Lake. Denny, you're on six twenty to be TMJ. Hey,
1: Jeff, how you doing?
0: Real well, thank you.
1: I, a, you know, it comes down to the employer has every right to ask for your cell phone if it's the company phone. Now, if it's your own personal phone and your own personal information, no, I, you know that they absolutely do not. But if you're on their phone or in their car uh, communicating you know, on a, on a, a wireless, mm-hmm. now it's none of their business what's on your phone, but it's every bit of their business what's on their phone.
0: What if they were? What if they were using? What if they were using like like I have a I have a I have a my, my email my TMJ email. I also have a personal email account that's not associated with work at all. But what if I was using my personal email account while I'm at work? So I'm on I'm on the company's computer system. In that case, does the company have a right to look at my personal email? No. Okay.
1: I mean that's your personal right. information, and that you know I'd be like saying you know you walk into work and you're a drop board right now, right? Uh, you know unless I I did something to to bring that upon me, no, no. right?
0: Okay, now thanks again. It, I mean it, it is kind of these variances because you you can play with the facts a little bit. What if it's your personal cell phone, but you're you're hooked up, you're you're logged into the company's Wi-Fi, you know, and it's and it's during. The day, or even if it's after hours or whatever, you're logged into the company's Wi-Fi, so you're using that. Does that change the dynamic? Now, I don't think it does either. I mean, I think, I think that uh, you have every right, every right in the world. If you are an employer, and this is a cautionary tale, if you're using your company email account or you're using your company cell phone, you need to recognize that there's not, there is not the type, there's not a right for privacy to that type of information. Um, keeping that information from your employer. Uh, there might be some rights of privacy, but it's not its not the same as if you're doing your own personal thing. Uh, John and Delafield. John, you're in 620 WTMJ. Good morning.
3: Good morning. Good morning. Well, I work for a company, as other companies, that have a BYOD policy, and that's bring your own device to work. So, from any users, that are out there and want to use their personal cell phone instead of carrying around two phones. They're using their one device to access company email and the right to use that device for work purposes. Right. So they're now signing a contract or a policy that gives the company rights to information that's on that phone. Now we're not in the habit of checking that or to explicitly go around checking anybody's phones or seeing what they're doing to the workday, but anytime you're accepting the agreement to put company data, so, every email is company data, and using that phone for company purposes, that device is now subject to any kind of corporate...
0: Right. Now, and, and, and now, in your example, in your ex- I'm, I'm sorry, we, we're kind of getting a little bit of backlash there. And I think you were saying, in your example, the company... Even though it's your personal cell phone, the company is paying, underwriting some of the cost of that, or maybe all of the costs, so that you can use your personal phone a- instead of uh, having to carry a second phone. Yeah, I, it clearly, I think it's pretty clear. If the company is footing the bill in any way, shape, or form, then your right to privacy is greatly diminished, which is a concern. I will tell you this, and, and there's, I, I, have nothing, I have nothing to hide on, on my cell phone, but at the same time, if I got whistled in to management, and they said, "Okay, we've got, we're trying to figure out who's, we're trying to, they're, we're trying to figure out who's leaking stories about what the next big thing at the next big promotion at WTMJ is, and and we want to see everybody's cell phone." Trust me, I'm not the leaker. It's I, I've nothing to hide. But at the same time, if somebody said we we want to see your cell phone and we want to look at all your recent calls, and believe me, it would be extremely boring. My my brother. And a um, couple other people who are, would show up regularly, but um, pretty much nobody else beyond that. But still, I don't think it's the employer's business. So you can ask. The problem is if somebody says no, what happens? Can you force them to turn it over? And my answer is probably not. 954 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 10-08. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. So Michelle, the long newscast was your way of doing me a favor. I was
5: trying, <laughs> right?
0: Just all right. That's, see. That's that's it. You could tell. I'm I mean, I'm playing hurt today. I I actually I, I I feel okay, but I've got this this cold um, that I've been fighting for a couple days, and it's settling in in my throat. And so uh, the worst time, Michelle, you could probably testify. The, the the worst time to try to do a radio show is first of all the flu. I did that once, Ugh. and that that just didn't work out. No. Um, but the second time is when, you know, you do spoken word radio, and I don't really feel that bad, but it's, you know, you've got this this in your throat. So, so we, we had the, the minute-long weather and the outrageously <laughs> long sports and stuff, and we let that all go because you were trying to give me some cover. I appreciate that. All right. Good luck, right. Jeff. That, that, you know, that's, that's it. That, this will be the parlor game. Listen for the next two hours. See if that man on the radio, see if his voice can hold out for a couple hours. That's um, And it's just, you, again, it's one of these, like, annoying things. I started feeling sick. On, on Sunday night, I was really productive, and then I thought, I'm kind of getting a cold, and it's been, it's been that way. I went home, tried to take care of myself yesterday, took a took a long nap, went to a station event, came back, took another nap, and I, the naps are only so long because my little dog decides when I've had enough sleep, and then she kind of wakes me up, but we will continue to play hurt. Hey, coming up in about an hour, there's a new study that's been released by the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty that um, tries to determine... Whether or not charter schools, parochial schools, private schools do a better job of educating kids than public schools do, and one of the problems that's always been out there is you you try to control for variables. For example, you know, public school advocates say that well, if if private schools do better, it's because the you, you. it might would be because you've got, for example, parents that are more involved. You know, they, they've decided to take the initiative. They've decided to, you know, do what they need to do to send the kids to private schools or charter schools or whatever, that, or parochial schools or whatever. So they're, you're getting a different type of student than you are in the public schools. And there's a study out that tries to control for that. And we're going to be talking to one of the authors of that in just about an hour or so. And I trust me, there's going to be heads exploding all around the area. All right, Donald Trump, yesterday during his speech that is getting universally high marks, did not speak in any detail about immigration. And I think if you were trying to try to find one defining issue for the Trump administration, it it would be immigration. And uh, if he got off to a rocky start, maybe part of it was this idea that we're going to Um, impose a temporary ban on people coming in from seven particular countries without really thinking through what the ban would be like. Well, anyhow, in in interviews with the news media, but not in the speech yesterday, um, Trump apparently indicated that he was open to a legal pathway for undocumented immigrants. And he said, look, I want to concentrate on border security. And he's still talking about building the wall. But I want to stop the flow of people coming into this country illegally. But then the question becomes, what do you do with the 11 million people who are here illegally? Um, Obviously, when it comes to the criminal element among those 11 million people, whether they're, I I, I don't know, whether it's 2 million or half a million or whatever that number is, when it comes to the, the criminal element, the people who are in this country and have committed crimes, I think everybody agrees that that should be a priority. The question becomes, though, of the remaining, let's say, 9 million. Again, maybe it's 10 million, maybe it's 8 million, whatever. Of the remaining 9 million, um, a majority of whom have probably been in this country 10 years or more, and a majority of whom have prob- are probably doing work that in many cases, as we've talked about before, Americans don't want to do, um, jobs that Americans don't want to do, Trump is now, at least in his remarks to the news media yesterday, signaling a willingness to create some sort of pathway to legal residency for undocumented immigrants. I don't know what that pathway is, and he's not saying what the pathway is. I, I don't think he's talking about citizenship, but rather there's all sorts of things you could do short of citizenship. Again, you know, permanent residency or whatever that doesn't allow you to vote doesn't make you a citizen, but allows you to stay. And this is this idea, I think, was floated at some point in time during the campaign, and it was quickly done away with. Now he is floating the idea again. What do you think? Is this a betrayal of his promises during the campaign, or is this a recognition that we've got limited resources, and if we want to concentrate on dealing with the immigration problem, what we should do is concentrate on protecting the borders And dealing with those 11 million people, whatever percentage you are, that are in this country that are creating problems, and maybe figure out a way to let everybody else stay. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Toll Free Talk uh, line. That's our talk and text line. (laughs) I call this section dealer's choice. It is perhaps what I consider to be the most talkable subject of the day. Donald Trump signaling a, at least potentially, a willingness to say, all right, Maybe we'll figure out a way to let some of the people who have been in this country for a long time stay. Is that a good idea? Is that reneging on his promises? If you were a Trump supporter, do you feel betrayed by that? Or does it just make sense? 414-799-1620, that's second Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We are back to discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. Seventeen, Jeff Wagner 620 WTMJ Donald Trump signaling and remarks he made to the press yesterday not remarks included in his speech that he was open to a legal pathway for undocumented immigrants is this a betrayal of his campaign promise what do you think let's start with Steve in Greenfield Steve good morning
6: hey Jeff thanks for taking my call sure. yeah I agree um, I, I don't think it's uh really deviating from the path that he took as uh you know that he ran on as president
1: um, But if he does open up a a path to legal citizenship, I think that would, you know, maybe take care of 25 to 40 percent, which would lessen the burden on um, deporting people. And then, you know, if they went through the right protocol to uh, come into this country legally, you know, like our great grandparents
0: did. So you wouldn't have a problem. You wouldn't feel a betrayal if if all of a sudden he said, OK, if we've got people that are you've been in this country for 10 years, maybe you've had a couple kids. Um, so they're citizens you haven't been in trouble with the law, you're gainfully employed. we'll figure out a way to allow you to to continue to stay. Maybe we're not going to let you be a citizen, but we'll figure out a way maybe you're a permanent resident alien or something like that. you would not find that to be like a betrayal.
6: Well, no, I don't think so if, if given the opportunity to to make right, I guess and then you mm-hmm. know kind of see where it goes from there and if they don't take that opportunity, then I would you know, Go to Plan B, which would
0: be deportation. Yeah, I think. See, one of the, thanks for the call that nine one six twenty. That is the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text line. Um, I see one of the things that struck me about this from from the beginning, as somebody who worked in the criminal justice system, not the immigration system, but the criminal justice system, that there there is there are realities as to what is is possible. We don't have enough immigration judges and enough immigration prosecutors to round up 11 million people. We, we, just, we, we don't do that. We don't have enough resources. Plus, there, there's all sorts of due process concerns that apply when people are in this country, even if they're in this country illegally. So I've always been arguing that what you have to do is you have to prioritize things. For me, the priority is starting with border security. Let's figure out what we're going to do to make sure that the border is as secure as it possibly is. We, we've got to stop the influx of people coming into this country illegally. We cannot have open borders. So that's priority number one. Priority number two, then, given the realities that I don't think it's possible to deport 11 million people, I think we need to figure out a way to prioritize things and say, all right, we've got limited amount of resources Let's figure out who it is that's creating the problems and we're going to concentrate on them. At the same time, I would also be concentrating on employers. Now if you wanna if you wanna solve at least part of the illegal immigration problem, it's that you, you focus on these employers who are for whatever reasons they're going out and they're hiring you know people who are in this country illegally because they think they can Pay them less money for you know certain positions or whatever. I'd concentrate on the employers and I'd concentrate on the people with criminal records, particularly people with significant criminal records. and that's where I would stress the deportation efforts. Now I, I understand that some people are going to talk about that as being amnesty. at the same time, I think it's a recognition of of reality, and we have to figure out what what is possible. The truth is, when it comes to illegal immigration, we are in a heck of a, heck of a mess. It's, you know, it's been going on for years and years to the point that you, know, you, you have 11 million people that are in this country illegally. If we only had three or 400,000, we wouldn't have to be having this conversation because we'd have the resources to deal with it. Right now, it is an overwhelming problem. And to the extent it gets worse on a daily basis, if that's in fact the case, you've got to shut it off. Let's talk to Dick in Grafton. Dick, you're on 6. WTMJ. Good morning.
2: Good morning. Uh, I think this is an extremely important issue for the president to deal with very quickly as well as Congress. Uh, out of that 11 million, uh, the vast majority of those illegal immigrants uh, are, are fine people. I don't think they're a problem. They're here illegally. We're not going to send them back. We're not going to put them into boxcars and send them home. And by the way, quite a few of them are not necessarily from Mexico. They're from Eastern Europe. They're from Asia. And it's going to be difficult to get them home. But we need to have some kind of a path to a legal status, not citizenship. I'm absolutely adamant that they should not be rewarded with citizenship unless they serve in the military and are honorably discharged. At the same time, Congress can deal with this anchor baby issue. I don't think that the Supreme, or, or, excuse me, the, the constitutional. Okay, amendment-
0: a- anchor. Just for people, to know, anchor baby meaning that if you are at, if you are born in this country, you are automatically a citizen. So, for example, if you have a father and mother who are here illegally, you're born in this country. You you are then a citizen. And some people find that to be a very offensive term, you know, anchor baby. But I know what you mean. It's the idea that, that that you, as the citizen, the child, is now the anchor that makes it difficult to deport mom and dad. That's what we're talking about, right? Correct. Right. And birthright and, citizenship, I think, is technically the the term. But I got it
2: right. And and this was this was a my understanding. It's a constitutional amendment that was uh, enacted to deal. To, to provide citizenship to uh, slaves after the civil war right. and the emancipation proclamation to clear up any questions about them being citizens. Right. It is it is a stretch to to to, to create this birthright uh, situation. It's also my understanding, we are one of extremely small number of countries in the entire world that have this provision.
0: Yeah. You would and, I, I think I think Dick, thanks for calling I mean without getting too far afield uh, yes to what you have said. You would need. I, I believe you. Would, some people say no. Maybe smarter people than me. I think you would need a constitutional amendment to to deal with the whole birthright citizenship issue. But but to me, I guess the, the the key point is, I guess I think see that as a smaller part of the problem. What you have to do is you have to secure the borders so you you stop people from coming in illegally. But I, I'm with you. I think for at least some percentage of people. There needs to be a path to legal residency, not citizenship, not voting rights, but legal residency. And I guess candidly, I mean, if somebody's been in a community, I was looking at a story in the New York Times the other day about some guy who, pillar of a community in some Illinois town, he's been here illegally for 20-some years, um, runs a restaurant, and everybody in the community likes him. He served on public office before, and he's now subject to deportation. Because, like, the immigration officials came around. Now, I understand. I'm not faulting immigration folks. They're just doing their job. But at the same time, it's like, okay, if we've got limited resources, why are we concentrating on this guy as opposed to, I don't know, the guy in San Francisco who's just been released on bail for a crime after being deported twice who goes out and commits another crime? Michelle and Eagle. Michelle, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Michelle. Um, I think the to citizenship is a great
5: idea Um, if people, you know, want to do that and everything, but my concern is why don't we look at the system and enforce, make our system stronger? I don't understand how illegal citizens are getting benefits
1: by living in this country. It's like, what is wrong with our system that these people can qualify and get these benefits without being legal?
0: Well, and it it depends on. I mean, thanks, It depends on what benefits you're talking about. I mean, there, there, there's some. I mean, for example, a lot of the advocates for people who are in this country illegally say, hey, they they pay into the social. They're they're working. They pay into the social security system, but they're never going to be able to draw from it because they're using a fake social security number or something like that. So they're never going to be able to draw for it. Now, there are certain benefits that people can qualify for. It depends a little bit on state to state, community to community, and of course. You have access to the public school systems and things like that. So it, it, it does it does vary a bit. But at the end of the day, we're in a heck of a mess. And I think we need to come up with, again, some sort of of plan that prioritizes our dealings. For me, you start with border security. And then you start, you concentrate on, let's get the, and Trump used the phrase, bad hombres, and people don't like that. But I, I know what he's talking about. Let's get the folks that are committing crimes, the people that aren't positively contributing, let's get them out of the country and then let's see where we are. To me, that that's the intelligent discussion to have. If you accept the reality that we we can't we do not have the resources right now to round up and deport eleven million people in any sort of timely fashion. To me, that's just kind of the common sense approach to it. Now again, I don't know. President Trump didn't mention anything about this in his speech. But he apparently signaled sort of a willingness to be open to this in remarks to the news media yesterday before his speech. Where he's going, I don't know. But I do think immigration is an issue that we have to take on. We have to take on in a common sense sort of fashion. Because right now I feel sorry for the immigration uh, folks. You know, they're told what part of illegal, don't you understand, if they come across people who are in this country illegally, they do their jobs. That's what the law says now, which is why – I don't think we should be fool I have no I have no patience for sanctuary cities that set to say that we're above the law and we're not going to cooperate but I think you need to assess what the law is going to be 1027 Jeff Wagner 620 WTMJ thirty six, Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. I admit I am fascinated by consumer trends and, and how we consume things and how things change. And I am I am old enough to remember before Al Gore invented the internet. And I'm old enough to remember when we, we used to have these things called like phones that actually you could not take with you. That you had to if you were out and about and you wanted to I don't know. Communicate. You had to find something called a phone booth and walk in and actually put money into the phone and then make those calls. I, I remember that, and I, I remember how we used to shop for things. You know, you would you would hear that hey, there's a there, there's a record by your favorite artist that's coming out. Record, DVD, uh, CD, whatever. Um, I remember records as well, and it's coming out on Tuesday. And you would read in the newspaper, and hear on the radio that hey, there's going to be this new release from this band, and so what you would do is you would wait down at the record store on Tuesday or Thursday at four o'clock and the shipment would come in and there would be the record and you would be the first one that have it. I, I remember those type of things. I remember if you were going to go see a show um, and the tickets went on sale at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning, and you would, you would go to the local Sears store where they had a ticket outlet and you would stand in line waiting to, to get those tickets that in some respects is a couple lifetimes ago, but it's really not that that long ago. But the way, the way we consume things, the way we buy stuff, has changed dramatically, and you're starting to see that really play out when it comes to retailers. There's some retail stores that are just in a ton of trouble. Sears, Kmart. I, I don't think there's going to be a Sears or Kmart within the next five or ten years. I I, I just I don't think so. Sears is Sears is pretty much cannibalizing itself. The the brands. That drove you, perhaps, to Sears. People are leaving now. I mean, they're, they're selling. They're selling the Kenmore brand. They've sold the Craftsman tool brand. I mean, they're just they're dumping all that type of stuff. Um, but but even some of the retailers who have been successful in the past, they're struggling as well. I think if you look, if you want to think about some of the retailers, some of the the department store type of places that have been successful. One of the ones that comes to mind to me is Target. And I I mean, Target, I think, was able to create a a brand where they they weren't the low cost. They they weren't Walmart. They they weren't Kmart. Um, But but they were still very low priced, but the sense that maybe you got, it was a step above in quality from like the Walmarts or the Kmarts. So there were some people who, look, there's some people who just, "I, I want the cheapest thing I could possibly find. But other people who said okay well I think the quality is a little bit better but still it's a price point that I want to find So I mean target has been very very successful. well target is struggling um, yesterday, Target announced that in response to some very disappointing fourth quarter numbers um, what where apparently uh, sales declined you know 1.5 percent. Um, their forecasts for 2017 were below what analysts thought. And so what Target says is it says we're going to – we want to rethink our strategy. And what they say that they're going to do in an effort to try to stay relevant is they say we're going to – we're going to cut prices. We're going to take less of profit margin. It might mean that we're going to get rid of some brand lines. But we're, we're going to cut prices. We want to lower the prices because we think it's, it's the cost – that might be hurting our our sales. So we need to do this because this is how we're going to have to adapt. 414-799-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage talk and text line. Now Target is of course, you know, not not alone in this. I mean, Nordstrom's and Macy's and Kohl's all reported lower revenue and sales. JCPenney announced last week that it's going to be closing up between 130 and 140 stores. All these department store type of businesses. And I understand that some people wouldn't necessarily think Target's a department store, but I mean, you know what I'm talking about. The the big box retailers that offer all sorts of product lines across the ways, they're all starting to struggle. And Target's solution is okay, we're gonna we're gonna drop some brands and we're gonna cut costs. 414 799 1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Will that be enough to solve the problem? Or is the problem, whether it's Target or Nordstrom's or Macy's or Kohl's, is it a more fundamental, larger problem? Does the business model still work? How do you shop? How have your shopping habits changed? And, all right, if Target drops prices by 10%, for example, just pulling a number out of the air, is that going to really motivate more people to go to Target, especially in the brick-and-mortar stores? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1041, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1045, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Dow Jones Industrial up uh, 250-plus points. Right now, it's um, over 21,000. I I don't think it's closed over 21,000 before. It's like 21,069 right now. I don't think we've closed over 21,000. This is in response to the president's speech. I always caution people either way, um, making financial decisions, buying or selling based on a particular political event, a temporary event, a good speech, a bad speech, Brexit, no Brexit is always kind of dangerous. But today, um, investments up, uh, Dow up over 250 points. All right. Uh, Target announces very disappointing earnings figures for the fourth quarter. They're saying, Hey, what we're going to have to do moving forward is we're going to we're going to cut prices, we're going to drop brands, we're going to try to get people back in the stores. Will that work? Uh, Clint in Bayview, Clint, you're first. Good morning.
6: Morning, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Yes, uh, I think it's going to be a shift uh, in the business model, uh, especially with the younger millennials. Um, you know, I'm in my 30s, so I guess I'm still part of that generation. But the the millennials in their 20s, you know, that's kind of the we kid around call them the snowflakes. But I mean. that's the generation who likes to feel, you know, special, more catered to. And I think when they go out shopping, they're looking for a more personalized experience. So they're not going to look into going into these big box stores. They're going to be looking for
0: that boutique shopping experience, yeah.
6: Right, the boutique, kind of like the Bayshore, you know, specialized stores, because when they go in there, then they're going to feel catered to and special, you know. And that kind of thing, I just don't see young millennials really getting into the, you know, uh, big retail stores. You know, like I said, I'm in that same generation, but I'm a little older. I have no problem going to five different, you know, I don't need to feel special. I'm all about getting
0: a deal. <laughs> right. Well, so, but and see, but that also, Clint, brings up the, the other thing, which is the elephant in the room, which is the Internet. Um, you know, nowadays, I, I think there's – I'm a buyer. I'm not a shopper. I I, I just – I never would enjoy, like, walking from store to store and browsing. That's just not me. Nowadays, I mean, I think there's just a lot of people. You you want something. We use my example of you you have an artist that you like, and there's a you you got you know the the DVD or the CDs coming out. Well, okay, instead of you know waiting at the record store, or the CD store, or the music store, you just say, okay, I'm I'm going to pre order this on Amazon or whatever, and it's going to be at your doorstep two days later. I that's see that's what I think any of these retailers are going to have trouble competing against.
6: Right. Yeah. The online state. You know, that that's kind of my deal too. You know, right. I'm a buyer, not a shopper. It's, it's all about, you know, checking the different websites of these bigger stores and whoever gets the best deal gets my order and I can get it shipped, right. you know, right to me with, you know, no fuss, no more kind of
0: thing. Right. No, I think that, I mean, that, that that's the, see, that's the larger question. And I guess I just, I wrestle with this idea of, okay, so you, so you, you cut prices, whatever, 5%, 10%, whatever, you're, you're going to cut prices, especially if you're a target you're never going to be able to cut prices enough to compete probably with the Walmarts of the world um, or, or with the, the clubs, the Costcos of the world. You're, you're, I guess I just don't necessarily see cut, cutting costs as the, the winning strategy because I think, again, that, that niche, if you're looking for people who are just, the, all they care about is you know, what's the cheapest thing, well, that's kind of Walmart has that established, and to me, it's just all right. How do you how do you figure out how to offer something that other people don't? Maybe it's the service again. That's the sort of the boutique thing we were talking about. Or how do you compete with the internet? And I I, I wish I had an answer. Bill and Racine, Bill, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Hi,
1: Hi I uh, I think uh, you know there's a niche for everybody, but uh, you're right about the internet and and everything. Uh, but I. I have a feeling that the internet, some people are just too busy to, they've got too many kids. They've got too many things to do. They need a bargain. And uh, when you're looking at uh, clothes, you could go to Walmart, I suppose, but if you're looking at something, maybe a step higher, you go to Target, but uh, dropping the top name brands, uh, people are doing that anyhow, when they're going to TJ Maxx or middle, middle of the road type of stuff. But it's, Step up, and so everybody—I mean—in their own economic practice, has their own time frame and their own uh, economy to have to work with. I guess. So does yeah. so.
0: Does it, what so? What is the future for your your typical standard department store, your Kohl's, your 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 Nordstroms, your Targets of the world?
1: Yeah, I see them as being—I mean—more of a, a, a category type of store, you know, where right. people have got to, in their mind they've got to get well. If you want good clothes, but you want them affordable go to coal or go to uh target you know but if you want food or if you want uh accessories you go to walmart you know what i'm saying to be more target specific but that'll take a year to get into consumer's mind you know exactly what are you concentrating
0: on right exactly and sometimes it it never works i i mean remember in what was one of the the true bomb and i don't say this in a good way it's not like you're the bomb it's it was a bomb Remember a few years ago, J.C. Penney said we're not going to do sales anymore. We're just going to we're going to schedule. We're going to set one price, and it, it's we're not going to do sales. It's going to be the, this one quote unquote low price. Well, they did that for about a year, and it just completely and totally failed because um, I don't know whether they didn't communicate that the the price was competitive or whatever. But so they immediately after about a year said, okay, um, we're going back to. You know the more standard type of stuff, and we will have these different sales. It does take a while to to educate consumers on what you're trying to do. Jeff in Wauwatosa. Jeff, good morning. You're on six twenty WTMJ.
1: Hey, Jeff. I think Target needs to work on their convenience. Their parking lot is a is an obstacle course. Yeah, and I'm always afraid that I'm going to paw over some kid running to play on one of those large concrete balls. Yeah, and that and then in the store, some items such as. As shoelaces and padlocks are incredibly hard to find, um, I tried finding them recently, and I felt like I was trying to find a Bible in an Ozzy Osbourne concert.
0: So it's it well, you know, and that's you know that's always the issue. I I hate I personally I haven't been in a Target for a couple of years, but I you know I just you know wheeling those little carts through those narrow aisles always it just it just it contributed to the fact that again why I don't like shopping is <laughs> a general rule. Yeah, there's there's nothing about there's nothing about the shopping experience that I, I find to be pleasant. But I, I here's what I think the big challenge is, and I, I don't I wish I had an answer because I would hate to see your typical brick and mortar retailers go by the wayside. But but this is the battle. I just know how I consume stuff nowadays. Years ago, if there was a book by an author that I liked coming out and I knew it was going to be released on Tuesday, I would be at Barnes and Noble or whatever the other bookstore was on Tuesday or I'd reserve my copy and I'd have it. That's not what I do nowadays. So if I'm reading Okay, the Wall Street Journal on Friday and they've got their book review section and there's a book that I think is really interesting that they're writing about, what I do is I go on Amazon and I just because it's the convenience. I, I'm I think I want it. If I delay it, I might forget about it or whatever. I just I go on Amazon, I put it in, I, I buy it. And maybe I see a couple other books by the same author that I buy as well. I think more and more people are are doing that. There will always be, I mean, brick and mortar stores for shopping, but I don't know how the the big box or the department store, those type of retailers that don't have the specialty niches, I don't know how they're going to be able to survive. And I have to tell you, if, if the idea is just cutting costs, and I, I mean, it's great if you can make stuff cheaper. That's better for the consumers. Target says we'll make stuff cheaper. We're going to be willing to accept lower profit margins. I mean, that, that's all great. That that's good for me. If you tell me the thing is is less than that, but at the same time, I, I don't I don't think you can. I do not believe you can cut use cut costs. You can cost cut your way out of the larger problem that's going on, which is maybe it's the unintended consequence of Al Gore inventing the internet. Just saying. Ten fifty four. Jeff Wagner. Six twenty. WTMJ. 10-57, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I tell you, this is days of our lives out in Madison, Dane County District Attorney's Office. What What happens is the the current district attorney is the unsuccessful candidate for state attorney general, Ishmael Ozan. Very, very liberal guy. He was challenged in the last election, last November, um, Actually, it was a Democratic primary by one of the members of his staff, a guy named Bob Jambois, who was a former Kenosha County district attorney who got hired to work in the DA's office in like 2015. So the guy gets hired to work in the DA's office. Um, According to him, he says the DA's office is a mess. He runs against the sitting district attorney, which is probably not the way to endear yourself. So he ends up losing. Now, his story is that... The day after he loses, or a couple days after he's lo- he loses, he's whistled into the office of one of the supervisors and told, we expect you to resign. We expect you to resign because presumably you ran against the boss. This is his story. He says, I'm not resigning. So what he says they did is they got together and just decided that they were going to, what would be the technical term, screw with him <laughs> by, by taking like all the worst and most complicated cases, the cases that... We're going to take a ton of time um, and dumping them all on him. It was like, you know, like, like okay, every, anybody got a case that's a messy, nasty, complicated case that's going to trial soon that you want to get rid of? Here, we'll give it to Jam Boys. And he says that they just dumped you know, all these cases on him with the idea of essentially, I think, trying to force him to quit. Um, he says his calendar had 31 jury trials scheduled in the span of less than two months Because Ozan or his staff shifted 20 cases to him that another district attorney had identified as the most difficult in his caseload. Such a crushing caseload in such a minute, expensive time was without parallel. So what they're essentially alleging is the guy, he ran against him, exercised his First Amendment rights to free speech, and the DA's office retaliated. Gee. The, the liberal members of the DA's office in Dane County retaliating against somebody for having the audacity to run against the boss? I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Now, they, they say, well, well, we'll look at this and we'll figure it out. But it's a nasty lawsuit um, that does underscore one of the problems. If you're working in an office and you decide to run against the boss, you know, if you're going to go after the king, you better take him out. Um, probably an untenable sort of situation. But at least based on the allegations, and that's all I have, um, having worked in a prosecutor's office for a long time, does sound like they were trying to shaft this guy for running against the boss and losing just saying coming up in a couple minutes heads across Milwaukee will explode there is a new study out that tries to assess apples to apples how do private charter schools and parochial schools do in comparison to the public schools stick around it's 1059 Jeff Wagner 620 WTMJ 1108 Jeff Wagner glad to have you with us when it comes to education I sort of have a simple approach to things. I want stuff that works. I don't care if it's public schools or private schools or parochial schools. If we're going to spend money, I want stuff that that works. And it is frustrating to me that you have educational bureaucracies that kind of dig in its heel, that that digs in its heels and says, well, we, we can't do this or we can't do that. And one of the things that's been very frustrating to me over the years is it's very difficult to get an apples-to-apples apples comparison. For example, if you try to compare, let's say, MPS to, all right, some, some parochial schools. Well, the argument will be, and, and you get data that suggests that the parochial school outperforms MPS. People who are defenders of the public school system will say, well, you don't understand. It's not fair because the the kids that are in the parochial schools, the parents are more involved. There's, there's socioeconomic conditions that the public schools have to deal with, that the Parochial schools don't or whatever. So you you can't, at least the argument is, you can't compare test results or results from different schools because there's a different student base. And so at least the argument is, you know, if there's not an apples-to-apples comparison, how do you know which system is really better? Well, we are joined right now by Will Flanders, who's the research director from the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. And uh, there's a new report out today, Apples to Apples, the definitive look at school test scores in Milwaukee and Wisconsin. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. Okay, tell me a little bit about why you did this study in the first place.
7: So I think your your lead in there kind of spoke to the reasons and the logic behind the report. Um, from both sides of the aisle, we often get um, just presentation of test score data without any nuance, without the appropriate controls. And in the past, it's been um, impossible, you know, short of getting data straight from DPI, you know, through through a, uh, you know, request process to get apples-to-apples comparable data uh, between sectors. Uh, But this year, for the first time, uh, we have extensive data on choice schools that allowed us to make these apples-to-apples comparisons and we thought putting everyone on a level playing field would be um, a useful piece of information for parents and the public at large.
0: Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about the apples-to-apples apples comparisons. Again, a lot of times the argument you hear is that it's not fair to compare choice schools to public schools because the kids that are in public schools are more socioeconomically disadvantaged, for example. Um, so the, the, the par- they're, they're going to have a tougher time learning than the kids in the charter schools. How, did you, how were you able to make this an apples-to-apples apples comparison?
7: So this year, for the first time, there is data from DPI, so straight from the the, the state, um, that shows the percentage of students who are economically disadvantaged in every school, including private schools, including charter schools, um, as well as the racial makeup of each school system, uh, as well as the number of kids in the school that come from uh, English language learning families or students that have a difficulty with language. Um, so we were able to take all those factors into account um, using data straight from DPI.
0: Okay, so you're, no, you're now able to adjust for those concerns that people had. So, all right, you can't use diff- socioeconomic differences as, as an excuse or a justification or an explanation. You have essentially um, worked out a system that accounts for all that.
7: Exactly. We've, we've essentially leveled the playing field. We use some econometric models that allow us to control for all of these things at the same time so that what we're left with is really the effect of the school rather than the effect of someone's uh, you know, family income and things of that nature, which we are well aware do have an important impact on, on performance.
0: Okay, well, I, I kind of buried the lead a little bit then. What, what's, tell me the results of the this, of this study. What did you find in your apples-to-apples comparison?
7: So I think we, you know, doing the most comprehensive look that's been done uh, across sectors, uh, at least in, in the last few years, um, what we find is that pretty conclusive evidence that choice and charter schools in Wisconsin and Milwaukee outperform traditional public schools. We looked at both the forward exam um, and the ACT, and in Milwaukee we found significant differences, significant positive effects of school choice uh, on forward exam performance as well as ACT performance. And then looking at the choice programs outstate as well as charter schools outstate, we found significant performance differences on the um, ACT exam pretty staggering differences, about 16% differences in terms of composite scores on the ACT test.
0: Were there some, were there some either charter or religious schools that outperformed others? I mean, were there, were there some, some institutions or some entities that were perhaps driving a majority of those numbers?
7: Absolutely. So we did a breakdown of the choice sector uh, into Catholic and Lutheran schools versus other choice schools. And what we see is that um, Catholic and Lutheran schools, with their you know long-term affiliation, long-time um, support of education, even outside of the MPCP, um, those schools were the biggest drivers of the positive results. Those schools were significantly higher in English and in math. Um, the r- remainder of the sector, while there's some great-performing schools outside of those um, Catholic and Lutheran schools, um, weren't much different on average than MPS. In terms of charter schools, and this gets maybe into a little bit of, of wonkiness, uh, but we have uh, three different kinds of charter schools, at least in, in Milwaukee. Uh, we have um, some that are very closely tied to the school district, and oftentimes we refer to them as charters in name only because they're effectively public schools with a, ch- with a charter school label. Um, outside of those schools that are very closely tied to the school district, um, those are the charter schools where we saw the positive performance gains. Those that are charters in name only Seem to perform about the same as MPS.
0: We're talking to Dr. Will Flanders, who's the research director for the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. New study out today, apples to apples, comparing test scores between MPS and between private parochial charter schools. Um, The racial achievement gap continues to be significant.
7: Yes. And so across all sectors in our study, we saw a pretty staggering um, achievement gap. So our our variable that we were looking at in the, in the forward exam was proficiency, so whether students were proficient or above um, in their forward exam scores. And if you took a hypothetical school in Milwaukee, which is a school that doesn't exist, that was um, all white versus a school that was all non-white, um, we see about a 52% difference in terms of proficiency. That, that represents, to some extent, the achievement gap. And while uh, we make the case here that the, the choice and charter sectors are better at closing that gap, it's certainly a, a problem um, across the board.
0: So where do we go from here? I mean, I, your, your study indicates kind of pretty conclusively that there there is this achievement difference as measured by test scores. What are policymakers, what should we take from this?
7: So I think there, there are a number of different policies that um, would aid in getting more kids access to these programs. Um, in Milwaukee uh, specifically, uh, we think it's fundamentally unfair that Um, these schools that are doing ostensibly or or seemingly with the data a better job are having to do that better job on more than $3,000 less of funding per kid. Um, Schools have to extensively fundraise, spend a lot of time fundraising to make up that gap, or they simply have to make concessions they otherwise wouldn't have to make if funding was more equal. Um, So we think one thing that would improve access and get even more schools potentially involved in Milwaukee in the choice system uh, would be if we could create more equality between the per-student funding that these students receive, get rid of that $3,000 gap. Um, When we look statewide, um, another fundamentally unfair thing is that a a student in a similar economic situation in uh, rural Wisconsin doesn't have the same access to choice that a student in Milwaukee does. Uh, There are differences in the income caps. Students in outstate Wisconsin are not able to access choice at the same level of income as students in Milwaukee are. And there's also just caps on enrollment. Only 1% of students last year and 2% of students this year will be able to be enrolled in uh, in choice programs outside of Milwaukee. Um, that impedes growth. It doesn't allow schools that might focus on choice students like we see in Milwaukee to be open. And it prevents parents that want to give their kids an alternative from accessing these schools. We saw um, that there were uh, lotteries held in, in some circumstances last year because there were more students wanting to take advantage of choice than were allowed under the enrollment caps. So those are a few policy changes that we think would um, help get more kids into these schools. Um, in terms of charter schools, um, we think what this report shows is that more authorizers are better. Um, we can't allow the city to simply become chartered by MPS only because those charters are not always the best-performing charters. So we think getting more more charter authorizers um, would be uh, another positive change that would uh, allow more kids into these high-performing schools.
0: Uh, Dr. Flanders, you might not be surprised, but I'm, I'm getting a ton of emails from people, and one one of the questions or comments that people are offering is that in, in terms of education, a lot of people believe that the single most important factor is, is parental involvement. If you're going to have the, the parents that are going to be involved, sitting down, presumably, you know, working with the kids outside of school, that type of thing. And people are questioning, how can you really, is it possible to actually quantify that and account for, for the notion of parental involvement?
7: Sure, and we would readily admit um, that's, a, that's a limitation on sort of any academic study um, of school performance. It's difficult to account for parental involvement. Um, I would make the case that sort of the control variables that we include and in economic status and, and, and race and English language learner status and, and things of that nature, um, to some extent, you know, fi- find parents with similar motivations and similar levels of, of interest in their child's education. Uh, but, we, but we would have to admit that that's a limitation. Um, but on the other hand, uh, we see that uh, sort of in MPS, there, you know, there are schools that have admission standards, these MPS specialty schools, And we don't see the performance differences that we see in the choice and charter sector. So even though those schools um, sort of require some sort of parental motivation or parental interest to get kids into, um, they don't outperform traditional public schools to the extent that choice and charter do. So it's not definitive evidence, but it's an argument in in favor of of some sort of accounting for parental interest in our in our paper.
0: You know, I, I had an opportunity last night to read your study in its entirety, and I think it's certainly it is certainly Food for discussion moving forward, and I think you're exactly right when you talk about the need to compare you know, apples to apples as opposed to apples to oranges. If our goal is to make sure we spend our money the best way and we, I think everybody, whether you're a public school advocate or whatever, everybody I think should agree that we, we, want, we, want, we want to find a system that works the best and we want to spend our money in the most cost-effective way possible.
7: Absolutely, and we're not—you know—we're not trying to get. I mean, this paper involves us in the sector wars, certainly. But our goal is to um, have every kid in Milwaukee and Wisconsin at large have the best opportunity to get the best education they can. Um, if we're finding here that choice and charter are doing a better job, perhaps there's things that. Uh, the public school system can learn from those schools and, and improve their performance as well. So we we'd like to see all all ships lifted, not just uh, yeah. not just particular sectors.
0: Got it. Um, Dr. Will Flanners, research director from the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Thanks so much for joining me this morning. I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Absolutely. It's uh this this study will it should get a ton of attention. And I understand there's going to be some detractors, but from my perspective here, again, I, I want something. I want something that works. That is what has been missing from, I think, a lot of discussion about education. And he was referring to sector wars. It's exactly right. You have people in the public education system who just dig in their heels and say, no, 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 you know, the charter schools, it's all evil. We can't have the public money going there. You have other people who say, look, look at the per pupil spending at MPS. We're putting all this money in. We're not getting the results out. I think it is important to have an ongoing dialogue as to, what works, what doesn't work, and then that's where we funnel our resources. It's eleven twenty three, Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. Breweries are common in southeastern Wisconsin, but not so much when you head out west. Gray's Brewing Company in Janesville has been bucking that trend since the eighteen hundreds. Our very own Mike Spaulding has the story in the We Love Wisconsin tour section of WTMJ.com. Uh, the the big Business story today, uh, the stock market is up big. Uh, the Dow Jones Industrial right now up 321 points. Um, it's 21,132. I I don't believe it's finished over 21,000. I don't think it's closed over 21,000 yet. I guess it's going to be corrected, but I don't think so. Um, right now, it's at 21,130-something um, huge response. Nasdaq up seventy eight points. That's a one point three percent increase. Um, and and it all appears to be in response to Donald Trump's speech last night. Now I always caution people, and I'm not a financial analyst, nor do I play one on the radio, except for the fact that I have money invested in the stock market. Um, I think I think sometimes people, a lot of times, investors tend to overreact to momentary. Things on the political scale. Um, would, okay, Brexit. When it was last summer, when Great Britain decides it's going to exit the European Union, there is this massive sell-off, and the Dow drops 800 points or whatever. And you no, know, a week, and then people sell, and then panic. And then what happens is a week or two later, all that 800 points has been gained, plus another few hundred. You had the election night after Donald Trump. It became apparent that he was going to be elected overnight. Like the folks who the early traders and stuff the stock market takes a huge, huge drop because people panic, and then the stock market opens up and people buy back. So uh, it's always, and I think my friend Dave Spano Spano from Annex Wealth Management always cautions people to, you want to look at market fundamentals, you want to look at the big picture, not just kind of bounce around by, you know, what's going to happen, what a political event is on a particular day. But if you wonder how Trump's presentation to Congress was received, There's lots of indicators. It's pretty much getting an A plus review for the speech, and perhaps you can argue for the first time this was Donald Trump really acting in a presidential sort of fashion. Candidly, while I give him an A plus, as I said at the start of our show, I don't think it was necessarily a conservative speech. I mean, he was talking about a lot of so-called big government type of programs. There was a lot of stuff that I would expect Democrats would be embracing. Um, A lot of the, a lot of the anti-free trade stuff, a, a lot of the like spending on infrastructure and stuff like that. Those are ideas that you would think would get a lot of support on the other side of the aisle. But regardless, the Trump speech, I think, was clearly a home run. And to the extent you have investors that are responding to it, they are responding incredibly positive. Dow up 330-some-odd points, NASDAQ up 77, a big day in the stock market The mainstream media, though, is still unhappy with the president. We'll talk about that in just a couple minutes. 1127, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1136, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Yeah, The the stock market, the the Dow is up 316 points right right now. Um, NASDAQ is up 75. A huge response to President Trump's uh, speech yesterday, and uh, it looks like the Dow is going to finish. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the next three and a half hours, but assuming no dramatic changes could be the first close over 21,000 that we've had. All right. I, um, I don't remember the mainstream media ever doing this with any other president. And this is, of course, something The Washington Post did before President Trump's speech last night. But I, I thought it was interesting. There is always, I, there's always buyer's remorse. You know, you, 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 you purchase a car, you make a decision, you, you decide to do something, and there's always going to be some people who say, you know, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I, I just, I'm sorry I did that. But I do not remember, for example, one month after Barack Obama became president, I don't remember any mainstream media outlet deciding to say, let's go to a particular state and let's try to find Obama voters and let's try to find a handful of them that say that they're sorry they did it. I just maybe there were stories like that. I do not remember seeing them. And my guess is that it probably wasn't. All right. Here is what The Washington Post does um, in the, some of the at, at, in the Midwestern, the heartland states like Wisconsin, that, that Trump won. Um, Iowa was perhaps even more than Wisconsin. Iowa was the state where, in some respects, it was a huge surprise. His margin of victory um, was nine percentage points over Hillary Clinton. Nine percentage points. So what the Washington Post does is they go to Iowa and they try to find people who are sorry that they voted for Donald Trump. Um, this is the headline. And they're, they're not subtle about it. These Iowans voted for Trump. Many of them are already disappointed. Clinton, Iowa. Iowa. Tom Godat, a union electrician who had always voted for Democrats, cast his ballot for Donald Trump last year as the lesser of two evils compared to Hillary Clinton. He's already a little bit embarrassed about it. There's a lot that Godat likes about President Trump, especially his pledge to make the country great again by ignoring lobbyists, challenging both political parties, and increasing the numbers of good-paying jobs. But Godat was surprised by the utter chaos that came with the president's first month. He said he often felt like Trump and his staff were impulsively firing off orders instead of really thinking things through. And he goes on to say, I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of embarrassed that I voted for him. So, and then the story goes on and they find a whole handful of people who said they voted for President Trump and now that they regret it. I have no doubt that anytime there is an election, You can go back and you can try to find people who voted one way or the other. And you will find some people who said, okay, well, I think in retrospect I've I've made a mistake. I voted for Barack Obama, but if I knew he was serious about that Obamacare stuff, I wouldn't have voted for him. I voted for Barack Obama because I bought into this hope and change thing, and now it's turned out that he's incredibly divisive. So I'm sure that there's always some degree of, of buyer's remorse that's out there. Like I said, though, I don't remember mainstream media outlets being this blatant four or five weeks into an administration as to trying to go out and and find those people who already in short term are having that buyer's remorse. But I thought this was an interesting launching point for a conversation. Our numbers are, uh, our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. All right. Here is my question. If you voted for Donald Trump, are you sorry you did it? Do you have buyer's remorse? Do you regret voting for President Trump? Are you disappointed with the way the administration's gotten off? Would you now think, hey, maybe I should have voted for Hillary Clinton? Do you have buyer's remorse? If you voted for Trump, are you, in the words of the Washington Post, already disappointed? They went to Iowa. I want to hear from Wisconsin. 414-799-1620 is the acunate mortgage talk and text line. We are back to discuss Next, stick around. 1140, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1144, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. What's better for the Bucks long term, a playoff spot or taking a chance in the lottery? Greg Matzik offers his thoughts in the Sports Central podcast on the WTMJ mobile app. That, of course, assumes that the Bucks can crawl back from many, many games below 500 and make the playoffs. But uh, I tell you, I, I consider this, I've said before, it's the curse of Ray Allen. I mean, ever since they traded Ray Allen, you just had one thing after another. The one year they were playing really well, and Andrew Bogut suffers a catastrophic injury, and that kind of dooms their playoff chances. And you get Jabari Parker, who's a young superstar and now. He's had his second catastrophic knee injury, and everybody says they think he's going to come back, and that you certainly hope that's the case. But when you've had two catastrophic knee injuries to the same knee, you you gotta wonder about those things. It's just I think I think for this new arena, I think again they need to bring in whether it's a witch doctor or an exorcist or whatever. I think I continue to believe you've heard about the case, the curse of the Bambino out in Boston. I think it's the curse of Ray Allen. I think they need to do something about that. All right, four one four. Seven nine nine one is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. The Washington Post goes out last week to Iowa. Donald Trump won Iowa by nine percentage points, um, which was his largest margin of victory in the states like Michigan and Wisconsin and Iowa that were arguably surprises. And five weeks in, they go out with the intent express purpose of trying to find people with buyer's remorse, people who voted for Donald Trump but are sorry they did it. And it's this huge story, and that's and the whole idea is well, I voted for him, but now I'm embarrassed for for him. I think this is an incredibly unfair thing. I think you could do this, you could do this with any sort of president. You could do it. You could have done it with Barack Obama. You could have certainly done it with George Bush to find this. And I guess I, I lump this in for people who wonder why Trump is kind of thin skinned when he and comes to dealing with the mainstream media. It it's stuff like this. Where you have people, let's not even give the guy a chance. It's only five weeks in. John um, on our text line says, It gets better every day. I'm glad I voted for President Trump. 414 799 1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Okay, where are you on this? If you are a Trump voter, are you glad you voted for him or are you having buyer's remorse like these people the Washington Post tracked down in Iowa? Martha in Elkhorn Martha good morning, you're first
5: Oh, yes, good morning. Um, no, I voted for Trump. I'm, I voted because I want to change and it was a big change for me. I went full circle, but I've been going that route since all that baloney was going on at the state capitol and the t- uh-huh. stuff in there. I have changed my politics a million percent. And so you
0: were was, you were originally before say 2010 and Act 10 and all that you would be you were a reliable Democrat and you switched around.
5: Well, I, I, I was raised Democrat. I vote for the person, but yes, um, and I, I did vote for Obama, but Hillary should be in jail, and I'm happy with my decision. I was actually embarrassed to tell some of my friends, and recently I'm, I'm, I'm like out of the closet. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm proud of it, and I want change.
0: You have come out of the closet. Thanks for calling, Mark. Well, that was, I think if you're looking for, there's a lot of stuff that was going on as to why the polls were so very, very wrong, and I think some of it has to do with the methodology of the polling that they were using. But I think, I mean, another factor is, I think that there were people who just felt that they couldn't admit saying that they were going to vote for Donald Trump because they thought that they were going to be ostracized or whatever, so they either didn't participate or in many cases they lied to the pollsters. And that is, to me, one of the ways that you explain, again, why the polling was just so terribly wrong. And that's something that the Trump people were arguing all along. They were saying, hey, look, um, you know, you've got folks who are, they're because of whatever reasons, they're, they're afraid they're going to get pressure from their friends or they're going to be yelled at or whatever. They don't want to come out and they don't want to admit it. But when they get into the privacy of the voting booth, this is, this is how they're going. And I actually, I mean, I think there's a lot of people that are out there. I will tell you, the, the, as somebody who was not a Trump supporter and not a Hillary Clinton supporter, um, I, I think one of the things I've seen is while I disagree with some of the ways Donald Trump has gone about stuff, Um, From a perspective of policy matters, I I find very little to criticize. I wish he'd get away from building the wall and those things. But, I mean, I think the appointment of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court was just, I mean, I think that was a home run. And I think if he gets off of Twitter and continues to give presentations and well-thought-out things like last night, I think that there's more and more people who are going to say, hey, you know, we're not embarrassed that we voted for him. Matt and Racine. Matt, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Hi. uh,
6: I have zero remorse. I'm excited for Trump, and uh, I'm just excited. Love it.
0: Yeah. So no, he he has been first five weeks. Even if there were some problems and rolling out some of the things, that's just a, a minor misstep. Nothing that's going to make you question what you did.
6: No, I think he's going to have a learning curve. Yeah. Um, like I said, he's, he's not a politician, and that's why I voted for him. But I'm excited to see him bring some pro business back to America and America first.
0: Yeah. Thanks for calling, Matt. Well, see, and that you talk about the learning curve. That's what's. Almost every first-term president has problems with the rollout. There, there is a learning curve. You have cabinet secretaries that get appointed, and for whatever reasons, they they don't get confirmed. Now, of course, this was made, a much bigger deal was made of it because it was Donald Trump, and you've got the mainstream media that's out to get him. But this is not. This is and. And having said that, I appreciate that there's some of the things that I think the Trump administration did that made you wonder whether they were ready for prime time. I mean, the immigration ban continues to be the classic example of that, where they, they, they roll out this immigration ban and there's nobody in the room that says, well, what about people who have green cards or what about people who have visas? And how are yeah, That's that's just something that you would have thought that they would have thought of. But I I lump that more into not so much and not ready for prime time as just, OK, we're new we, we didn't think through the implications of this, and, and we didn't pay enough attention to dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Um, on our text line, um, let's see, Jamie from Muskego says, I'm still very proud of my vote for Trump, and seeing the liberal immaturity and bitterness just makes me feel even better about it. Let's talk to, um, is it uh, Eugene in Waukesha? U- Eugene, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning.
3: Yes, hello. Hi. Yeah, i uh, as I said I voted for trump but unenthusiastically because I was really voting against Hillary right but but with what's happened since I'm really glad
1: that I voted for him I'm very happy with my vote
0: what what if you had to identify like say one particular thing what would that be
3: <clears throat> and, and that caused me to
0: vote no no that, that my... you're happy that you're happy with him that that's oh, kind of... I,
3: I, I like I like the businessman
1: kind of okay. dis- approaches he's taking
0: yeah well i think I mean that's that, that's the idea. You know, last night in his speech, the it, it turned out to be a Democratic laugh line because he said he was draining the swamp, and then they all kind of laughed at him. I think this is one of those situations where, again, just like, and our, our, our caller was talking about like Act 10 and all, just like how I think the reaction to Act 10 was so over the top and turned off a lot of middle-of-the-road voters, I think some of the, the just crazed reaction to President Trump in his first few weeks and the overt media bias that you find, I think a lot of that is bringing, bringing mainstream America around. And if, if he's going to continue to give speeches and presentations like he did last night, I, I think I think people are going to be in for a, a pleasant surprise. Jerry in Waukesha. Jerry, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning.
1: Yes, good morning, Jeff. I'm uh, mostly... Uh lean towards the Republican side. I wasn't happy with a lot of Republican candidates, but Trump appealed to me because he's never been in politics. I know he has some things, issues that uh, this baggage, but I'm very pleased with him. One of the uh, major things was who he chose for Secretary of Defense. Right. I'm retired Army, but I don't think there's ever been a military person as the Secretary of Defense. It's always been an ex-senator or congressman. For politicians, I think Leon Panetta, Melvin Laird, you go on and on. Right. Now, you got someone in there running the Department of Defense with a military background, and I don't think that's ever happened.
0: Well, and you talk about, I mean, I'm listening to his presentation yesterday. I mean, you talk about somebody who's committed to spending money to try to, you know, build back the military and build up the Department of Defense. That's certainly one of his agendas. He's putting a ton of money into security. Yeah, hey, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Uh, Yeah, I'd have to go back and think about um secretaries of defense i of course bob mcnamara who during the vietnam era who wasn't a military guy mike in menominee falls mike here on 620 wtmj good morning
6: good morning jeff um i just have to say last night when i was watching uh the the speech by by donald trump it was the first time in a decade that i have watched a a presidential address that i have that made me feel good to be an american yeah i really it was such a difference i mean Normally, I couldn't I, – for the past eight years, I haven't been able to get through an entire address by Barack Obama without my stomach turning and turning it off. But right. I have to say, I, I was proud to be an American after listening to Donald Trump last night.
4: It, it,
0: it was – It was. I mean, thanks to calling. It, it was an A-plus speech. And I guess – look, the, the truth of the matter is, and this was kind of my point of my topic, if, if, you've, got, if you've got a media with an agenda – and you, you could have done this with any president. I just think it's interesting that the Washington Post decided to do it with this president. Um, would they find as many people after last night's speech? I don't know. Um, I just don't know. Let's see. Got a couple of our text lines. Um, I was a Scott Walker, Marco Rubio, and Ted Cruz supporter. I'm glad I voted for Trump. Um, hmm. uh, I think a lot of people are starting to come around to that. It's 1154. Coming up next, we'll find out what Scafidi and that have on their minds for what will be an abbreviated show before spring training baseball. Stick around. 1157, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, I want to understand how you guys managed to work this out. Scafidi and Stat. first show yesterday. Today, you've got an abbreviated show. You, I mean, you, you did a whole three hours yesterday. Now, today... It's less than two hours because of spring training baseball. How did yeah, you work that yeah. out?
1: Isn't that nice? Lots of pre-planning, Jeff. We <laughs> thought about our schedule
0: very closely. <laughs> that's that's right. Well, spring training baseball, but before that, two hours of the program. What do you got coming up on the big show?
6: You know, we heard you talking about Donald Trump and obviously he had his big speech right. last night. A lot of different reaction, including some really surprising ones. We're going to we're gonna dig deeper on that. And then, obviously, there's always things going on, but the weather is one of those things. And today, John Milan's uh, officially retiring, so we're going to talk about
0: that a little bit. Yeah, that's... Um I, I said this earlier. John Milan is an old school Renaissance guy, and there's no mm-hmm. school like the old school. And uh, yeah, his final broadcast is going to be uh, five o'clock, six o'clock, and ten o'clock today.
4: Those types of personalities, those weather iconic guys, are are dying off. They're all retire- you well, don't, reti- you retiring. Don't, retiring. Retiring. That's <laughs> what re- I meant by that. Yes, re- retiring. Yes. Right. That's what I meant. It, right. That you just don't see that type right. of local
0: iconic people anymore on the radio. Well, or yeah. On TV, and, yes. and, and we've seen. Just in this market, you know, you've seen a lot of a lot. Of, I mean, Vince Candela. Right. You've know, yeah. seen a lot of the the guys that have been there, have done this for years and years and years and years and years mm-hmm. that we all grew up with. I, I always tease Milan about that, but yeah, I grew up watching him on TV. You know, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And you know, and it's kind of like that. But so he he will definitely be missed. There's no question about it. So that is all coming up. Hang on. Scafidi and Stat is coming up right after the news. I am out of time. I am back 8.30 tomorrow morning when we do this all again. Drive safe if you're out in the weather. Have a great Wednesday. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 11.59.